0: turn with me to Judges chapter 6. The kids can be dismissed. In Judges chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12 today as we get into the story of Gideon. Let me just ask you a question. Do any of you, and if you, if you don't want to answer because this is a small community and a small church and sometimes people know people you don't have to answer it um physically or out loud but do any of you or have any of you had family feuds in your family um and i'm not talking about necessarily siblings like that kind of stuff growing up that's typical Uh, but like things that as adults there's been feuding that just continues to linger. Because um, we're getting into um, a, an account here with the account with the of Gideon, we're getting into some, something that's on kind of a different level than what they've got, what we've seen so far in Judges. And there's a recurring thing that we're, I'm gonna mention in the early part of the sermon, um, because there's family feuding that uh seems to be a long an ongoing thing a long-term thing that um Israel continues to have to deal with. So, um if you have that in your own family, then you might on a smaller scale understand a little bit about what Israel is going through, although they brought on much of it themselves, but and I'm not pointing any fingers, but sometimes sometimes the feud is just as much our fault, sometimes it's not our fault, but um, just a little bit of a parallel between what we sometimes deal with in life and what they are going through here in the book of Judges, especially in chapter 6. So if you have chapter 6 open and you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? We're going to look at 1 to 12. We're going to, this is going to take us a number of weeks to get through. This is a long account before we move to the next Situation with the next judge. So we're going to be spending time with Gideon for quite a while. Chapter 6, starting verse 1, says this. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, in caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or... Sorry, it was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians And I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, people like Gideon who s- were servants. Thank you for allowing us to um, be able to go back over this again and again and again and look at the accounts of what we see in your word so that we can learn more and more and every time we go over it you reveal more of yourself to us and so today I pray that you open our hearts and our minds and you reveal yourself to us in uh, what you're doing in the life of your people through a specific person, Gideon um, but that we can see what that means for us today, how that affects the way we think, how that affects the way we act and and live and behave, and how that affects the way we see you and understand you, so that we can take what we learn and we can be faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <coughs> All right, so we're not going to get very far in the in, in the count today because we're going to get we're going through twelve verses and there are three chapters that cover get in. Um, so we're just going to get a we're going to get some introductory things and we're going to get some uh, basic things before we get into some of the more uh, b- more developed part of the story more the deeper parts of the story um so in verses one to six we're going to look at the oppressor and i didn't give you anything to fill in um i uh i was there there was a lot of stuff going on in my head and i was uncertain about where i was taking this uh, even up to yesterday so um i i left that blank so that i wasn't feeling like I was forced to put stuff in there, so you can take the notes that you feel are necessary. Um, so, but we are going to look at the three parts of the text that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at uh, this, the first we're going to look at who is oppressing them, and, and we learn early on that it's the Midianites. Now, Midian, I, I was talking about family feuds because, and, and this is something that we continue to see, um, it's not uh, it's not with every, pers- every group of people, every nation that oppresses Israel throughout the, the time of Judges, but it's not uncommon that we see that the oppressor is a group of people that is somewhat related to Israel. And Midian is related to Israel in a couple of ways. The, Midi- the Midianites are the descendants of Abraham by his wife, Keturah. Um, if you'll recall in Genesis chapter 25, um sarah when sarah passed away abraham took another wife and we learn in chapter five that he chapter 25 that he also had concubines but he took another uh wife her name was keturah and they had a a number of sons and one of their sons was midian who became the father of the midianites so they related to israel in you know kind of distantly but through the descendants of Abraham and his wife, Keturah. Um, But they're also, and we talked about this a little bit last week, they're also related to Midian through Moses' marriage. Moses' wife, um, Zipporah, was, um, she was a Midianite. And so we, we talked last week in the account of Deborah that, uh, Remember, the the lady who killed Sisera was Jael. Her husband was Haber. They were Kenites. The Kenites were a tribe or a clan within the nation of Midian. And so, um, they're related to, Israel is related to Midian in a couple of different ways. um, Through Abraham's, one of Abraham's descendants, and also through marriage with Moses. Midian oppressed israel in this particular situation with the help of we're told the amalekites and we're told um some other nations they're unnamed nations so we don't know who they are but we are told specifically the amalekites and i don't know if you've noticed but frequently the nation that is oppressing israel does it with the help with the help of other nations have you have you picked up on that as we've read these it's not, it's not um, uncommon that it's a nation who wants to invade and oppress, but they take some help with them. And so I Israel, even though they came out of Egypt with two million people, they were still relatively a small nation compared to the nations around them. So how would Israel be able to withstand an enemy that's working in alliance with one or two other nations? So that... Um, Without the help of God, like if you're just talking, just talking manpower and strategic warfare and that kind of thing, Israel would have no chance against these other alliances that are that are teaming up against them. It's like three or four big bullies that team up on a small wimpy kid at school, right? Um, so Midian and Amalek and some other nations that we don't know came up against Israel. Now Israel also had a long history with the Amalekites, because it was the Amalekites who were the first people to engage Israel in warfare or in battle before the period of the judges. It was when they were coming through um, to the Promised Land. And so there's been this, there's this relationship with Midian. There's been this long hostility with the Amalekites. Um, Earlier in Judges, the Amalekites were also allied with King Eglon of Moab when Moab came in to oppress Israel and God raised up Ehud to to kill Eglon and then deliver the people from oppression. So the Amalekites were a constant thorn in Israel's side. But here in this particular situation with Gideon, Midian is the one. Midian's the main nation that's oppressing them. Midian is the one who was um, kind of the ringleader here. And they grab the Amalekites, and they grab a couple other nations to go with them. Now, as you look at Israel's history with Midian, so they're related to them by a couple different relationships, but if you look at their history with Midian, there is a... Kind of a long history there as well. Midian had become an enemy of Israel by the time Moses was writing the book of Numbers. And so by our text today, the Israelites you know, are, are, have already been, for a long period of time, dealing with Midian as an enemy. God considered Midian an enemy. Um, we get to our text today, and the Israelites are being so oppressed by them, and they're in such fear that they're fleeing to take shelter in the mountains and in the caves and anything they can find to hide from them. In fact, we're told that Gideon was threshing wheat and he was doing it in a wine press. You wouldn't normally thresh wheat in a wine press. You usually use that for making wine. But he was doing it in a wine press because it would be a place that the Midianites would not have thought to look and so he could keep it hidden and secret from them. And so they were doing everything, they were hiding, they were taking shelter in places that weren't their, nor- that weren't their cities that they had developed, they were doing everything they could to hide their stuff so that Midian couldn't come in and, and steal whatever they wanted because they were coming through and they were just destroying the land Now what differentiates Midian in this situation from the other situations that we've covered so far in Judges is that Midian is destroying the land. We see as we've covered the other ones. The nations come in and they oppress the people and they enslave them and they mistreat them and that kind of stuff, but we, we haven't heard anything about destruction of crops, destruction of the things that are necessary for them to survive. And what Midian is doing is they're destroying the crops and they're killing the animals. It says in verse, um, well, the, those first, let's look at those first uh, six verses. Um, so all of this was brought on because Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so for seven years, they, de- they dealt with this for seven years. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves, so they're hiding out. Now, here's what, they di- what they're doing. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and these other eastern peoples would invade the country. They camped on the land, and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. So that gives you an idea of the this, this stretch here. Gaza was, uh, if, if, if you're looking at a map of Israel, you've got the, the Mediterranean Sea comes right here. The land of Israel is right here. On the very edge is uh, Philistia. And there were five major cities of Philistia, and Gaza was a Philistine city. And so they're coming through, and they're they're wiping, ac- they're just going sweeping across the nation, all the way to the the border of Philistia, and destroying the crops. It says that they um, they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle s- or nor donkeys. So they're not only destroying their crops, they're also destroying their herds or their flocks or whatever it might be. And so they don't have those in, if they need them for food, they don't have those animals if they need them to work. And so they're, they're, what, what's different here than what we've seen so far is that they're completely destroying everything they have in terms of a livelihood. They're not just enslaving them and making them do work for them. Or making them pay tribute, or whatever it might be, they're they're making it impossible for them to survive. And it's not this is not just that they came in one time and did it. They, it says that whenever, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, so every year this this took place. Every year they would come in and they would destroy it. Now, verse four you look at verse four, it tells us we see we see that there's this lo- this big stretch of land that they're covering that they're just sweeping across and destroying. And I think that helps us understand. And, and one of the things that we will get into more as we move along in the account, wh- I think that helps us to understand the vastness of this army. They we're told in our text today that they when they came up, they were, they were like swarms of locusts. I don't know if you've ever seen, have any of you ever seen like a video online of what it looks like in the Middle East um, when, uh, or in the um, even in the Egyptian area where uh, da- down further south where there was a plague of locusts at one point. I don't know if any of you have ever seen what it looks like when a locust swarm comes in like what they're talking about but there are so many of them that it blackens the sky you can't like it makes it look like you're in 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 broad daylight when the sun is straight up and there are no clouds in the sky these things move in and it looks like nighttime that's how thick they are that's how many come and so when they when when the bible describes an army or something like that as a swarm of locusts like it is unable to be you can 't count them you can 't even necessarily see the end of it so that 's how they 're described here, and we 're told that they 're sweeping across the entire nation and and just destroying everything and so that 's what israel 's dealing with and the the locust the idea of a locust is also symbolic here because locusts destroy everything that they eat everything that they can get get their teeth on so um so you've got this nation that's coming in with so many people that they can't even be counted, and they're just destroying everything the way a plague of locusts would. But I think it's interesting that, th- maybe symbolic here, you've got an army that's moving in that is so numerous that they can't even be counted. You can't see the end of it. And the reason the army's coming in Is as punishment for the countless sins of God's people against them, against Him, over and over and over again. So you've got a countless number of soldiers to parallel the countless sins on the part of Israel. However, that. Size and that number and that description, so that we understand how big the army is. That is precisely why God was to receive all the glory in the end. But that's that'll be in weeks um, to come before we get to that point. But that is going to be an important thing to understand. It's going to be an important thing to understand when God chooses those who are going to fight for Him, and it's going to be an important thing to understand. when we see him execute his plan. All right, point number two is the rebuke, verses ten, seven to 10. And again, we find something different in this account than we've seen so far with the other accounts of judges. The situation in the past that we've, that we've talked about, so we've talked about who are the, who are the judges? If you need to sing the song, you can. Othniel, same with me. I want to make sure you're learning them. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, and now today Gideon. Okay, so what we've seen with the ones in the past, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, and Deborah, is they sin, you know, think of the sin cycle. They sin, God allows another nation to come in and oppress them. After so long they cry out to the lord for deliverance god raises up a judge sends the judge in um, and we've seen two different things happen we've seen like with Othniel he just went he raised up Othniel he just went in and he um, as a military commander went in and conquered the oppressors with Ehud he killed the king first then rallied the people but then they defeated the oppressors so, but what we see is that when, when they cry out, God raises up a judge, and the judge goes and delivers them. Not, that's not the case here. Look at verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. He didn't, he didn't raise up a judge yet. He first sends a prophet, and the prophet takes this message from the Lord to the people. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought you up out of Egypt out of the land of slavery i rescued you from the hand of the egyptians and i delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors i drove them out before you and gave you their their land i said to you i am the lord your god do not worship the gods of the amorites in whose land you live but you have not listened to me so what we see here that's different than the others is that god doesn't just simply raise up a judge to bring a message of hope And rally the troops. You know, when when the people are crying out and God finally raises up a judge and the judge shows up, he comes to them with a message of hope, right? If it's Gideon, he says, I've killed the king, now let's go finish the army. Um, If it's Othniel, he shows up with the message of hope, God has called me and he's going to deliver you. With Deborah, she she took the message to Barak and she said God has God is calling you to go and to, and, and to conquer Sisera and his army. And Sisera went and gathered 10,000 troops with a message of hope. Let's go. God's delivering you. But here, he first sends a prophet. And we don't know who the prophet is. We don't know anything about him. We just know what the message is that the Lord gave him to speak. They've been crying out in desperation but unless there's more to the message than what we're given in the text of Holy Scripture, the message is not a message of hope. It's going to it's going to turn into that. We're going to get into that as we move along in the account. But this very first encounter, when God finally sends somebody and the people who've been crying out in desperation for deliverance, they see that God, you know, he shows up and he says, "I've got a message from the Lord." You would hope that. You you would be in anticipation that it was going to be okay. God's going to deliver us, but He doesn't do that. He rebukes them. So unless there's more to the message, it's a it's a message only of rebuke, not of hope. And the rebuke simply reiterates what Israel probably already knows, what all of them probably already know. You messed up, and you did you messed up big time. So what God does is he lists all the things that he had done for them up to that point. He goes all the way back to delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians in the account of the Exodus. And he says, I delivered you out of Egyptian slavery. I have delivered you out of the hand of every person who has tried to oppress you. I've given you their land. I drove them out before you and I allowed you to have the blessing of this land. I told you, I am your God. Do not serve the gods of the Amorites. So this message is not one of hope, it's one of rebuke. And the very last word that the prophet gives to them, as far as we have in our account, is you did not listen. And and so I... If that was the end of his message from the Lord, can you imagine being the Israelites who've been crying out, knowing that God has promised he will never forsake them, and they're crying out to him, and they're looking to him for deliverance, and he sends somebody, and he says, he says, here's a message from the Lord. Here are all the things they did. You know, and I don't know, I don't know if it would have been commonly understood by them, but we understand that having the full account of Scripture God frequently goes to the people and gives them an account of, here's what I've done for you. Here's the sin you've committed against me. But it's usually followed up with, yet, I will be faithful to the covenant. I will deliver you. Or even when they went into the exile, it was, it was, I will come. I, w- I will bring you back, right? There's this message, there's always a message of hope. I will bring you back. So it's, here's what I've done, here's what you've done to violate the covenant, yet I will not violate our covenant because I'm God, not man, right? But here it's, here's what I've done for you, here's what I commanded you to do, you didn't listen, mic drop, exit stage, right? So can you imagine what they would have been thinking, you know, you, like if you put yourselves in their shoes, you and your people have been suffering, you're starving, and you're impoverished because these people have taken everything every year, every time you've tried to grow crops to have food, every time you've tried to raise flocks and herds, whether it be f- or have other um, animals to help you be able to till the land, to plant and, and all that stuff or to serve as things like wool for clothing or to serve as food if necessary and they've taken all this stuff and they've left you with nothing it says I mean impoverished is the word verse 6 Midian so impoverished Israel, the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help so you and your people you're suffering you have no food you're impoverished because of what they're doing You've been crying out to God for who knows how long. God finally sends a messenger. It probably sounds normal. Here's God recounting what he did. Here's what we've done to violate it. But the last part about being delivered isn't there. He just rebukes them and walks away. And I wonder if they thought, you know, because remember their mindset was, they were justified and they were made right with God by keeping the law. Not, it, it was, it was law-based in their understanding. Um, not as much of an understanding of grace as we get in the New Testament. But I wonder if they thought we went too far this time and even the Lord won't receive us back. But you and I know that that's not the heart of God. God's love has no limits like human love. what What I've found is we often, our minds understand God's love because of what we know and understand and experience in terms of human love. So what we do is we project onto God as if our understanding, our limited understanding and our limited amount of love, we project that onto God often as if that's how God loves. But God is not a man. He does not have a limit to his love like mankind does. And so deliverance is going to come, but the Israelites have to understand that God keeps his word. And part of his word was there will be consequences for your sin. And so they need to understand before deliverance comes that God does keep his word. He is faithful to his word, even if that seems to be unfavorable In for us in our understanding verses four to six now we're talking about verses seven to ten but I want you to just flip back in your in your chapter to verses four to six and I want you to recall the consequences of the disobedience that God laid out in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy because what we see happening in four to six before the people cry out is exactly what God promised them would happen if they disobeyed Deuteronomy, uh, flip to Deuteronomy 28 with me, if you would. Deuteronomy 28. Let's just read through that together. Um, There's a handful of verses. Deuteronomy 28. um, First look at verse 31. I'm going to kind of go back and forth. I'm going to read what he says in Deuteronomy 28, and then I'm going to reference it in Judges 6. So 2831, your ox will be slaughtered. This is, this is in the, the section where God says, if you disobey me, here are the consequences that will happen when you're in the land. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will eat none of it. Your donkey will be forcibly taken from you and will not be returned. Your sheep will be given to your enemies and no one will rescue them. And so we see in verses four to six of our text today, that it says that as they came through, that they didn't they didn't spare anything, any living thing for Israel, neither their sheep, their cattle, nor their donkeys. And so Deuteronomy 28 warned them that that if they even if they had numerous flocks and herds, that if they disobeyed, those would be those would be taken away from them. Um, look further down in Deuteronomy 28 at verse starting verse 38. He says you will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. And you will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. 42, swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. And so our text for today, it says that they came through, and, uh, and again, it's interesting, they're compared to a swarm of locusts because of their number. They came through and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. They didn't spare a living thing. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels, they invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And so they were, God warned them, if you don't obey, all of the things that you depend on, all the things that you place your hope in in terms of earthly survival will be destroyed or taken away from you. So Israel is experiencing the hard truth of God's faithfulness. God is faithful. There is no more faithful person, no better friend, who will always be your support and in your corner and who will always keep the covenant of the blessings that he promises. But God's faithfulness to his very character also means if he has a consequence for sin, he will also carry that out as well so we can we can celebrate his faithfulness like in what we read in malachi 3 6 to 10 where it says that he will if we bring the tithe into the storehouse he will open up the floodgates of heaven and pour on them so much blessing that they wouldn't have the ability to hold it or store it so we're talking blessings immeasurable and that sounds wonderful but on the flip side Israel's disobedience brings the same intensity and the same level of response from God with the consequences that he gives in the law. There's no judge that shows up with a message of hope. It's a prophet that shows up with only a rebuke. All right. As we look at verses 11 and 12, we're going to look at the deliverer. We uh, We are introduced here to Gideon. So here's the first mention of Gideon. Um, Now, there is so much to cover in the narrative of this particular servant of the Lord. Um, I said, I told you earlier, the author judges gives him, I mean, he didn't break it into chapters, people did later, but the equivalent of what we have in our Bible is three chapters worth of the text is devoted to Gideon. So we're going to talk a lot about Gideon before we even really get to the battle for deliverance because there's a lot of exchange and conversation he has with God that we will cover uh, before we even get to the battle but we're going to talk a little bit about him today um, leading into the text for next week so Gideon is one of the more well-known judges Um some commentators break the judge, there, there are 12 of them, some of them break them up into six what they call major judges, like we also consider some of the prophets major prophets, and some call the other six are called minor judges. Um, Gideon is one of the, what, if, if you're going to break it into the, those categories, Gideon is one of the major judges. It's one of the ones that are more um, well-known. Um, I would say that Gideon is not only a well-known character in Judges, but he's also a well-known character in the whole redemptive story. So, you know, if you look at a children's Bible, you tend to get the most important things that, uh, they're usually narrative accounts, you don't get a lot of, like, teachings or poetry and that kind of stuff but what you get in children's Bibles are basically the important pieces as you follow the redemptive timeline through Christ and what he did on the cross and then his resurrection and ascension to heaven Um, you'll find the story of Gideon in most children's Bibles Uh, it's told on Sun it's told in Sunday school and the accounts told in children's churches like all across the country you have, there are character profiles that have been drawn up in books about Gideon. Um, sermons cover it. People even name their kids after Gideon. And so he's one of the more well-known judges. You can't say that about everyone in the Bible, or you can't even say that about all the judges. I mean, how many, how many lessons have, it, or sermons, have you guys ever heard on Tola, Ibzon, or Abdon? I mean, I've. I grew up in the church my whole life. I went to Bible college and seminary. I've attended or worked in countless churches over the course of my 44 years of life. I listen to sermons on the radio all the time. I listen to podcasts about, uh, you, you know, ser- either sermons or podcasts or lessons or character profiles sometimes. I've never heard anyone preach or teach on those characters. Tola, Ibzon or Abdon, those are all judges. If you'd memorized the song, you would have known that. Just saying. But I've never heard anybody teach or preach on them. I've never even been in a small group where anybody's brought up one of those to bring in some kind of a life lesson. That's not the case with Gideon. People know who Gideon is. So, as a character that is so well-known and respected, As Gideon, you would expect to read the account and see him painted as a strong, able bodied, strategic, and charismatic leader to whom everyone flocks because they're just excited to follow and serve. But chapters 6 to 8, as we go through the account, paint a different picture of this man. The way these three chapters are laid out, In the first six verses, we see the first three steps in the sin cycle, right? Israel sins, and God allows a nation to oppress them, and then they cry out to the Lord, right? Those are the first three steps in the sin cycle. We see that, all of that, in just the short amount of these first six verses. And then the author of Judges spends the next 94 verses telling us about what God did to rescue his people. That's a pretty lopsided ratio. You know, we we like things to be nice and neat and divided equally, so the American mind would probably try to write this account out so that each step in the sin cycle gets an equal amount of verses or uh, you know, an equal amount of time. Um, but the author of Judges flies through the first three steps in the first six verses and then the next 94 verses. That's a lot of text. I think a chapter's long when I'm reading it and it's got 30 verses. So, 94 verses is a lot of text. But that should tell us, because it's so lopsided, that should tell us that the focus on the account is not about Gideon. You know, it's really easy to look at these people and think these, these people were picked because they had a skill, because sometimes they are. Or these people were picked because they were a good commander. So Ehud had a skill that nobody knew of. Shamgar had a skill with an ox goad Othniel was already known to be a military commander because in the conquering of the promised land he he served in that role. So sometimes we look at these people because of because of God uses them because he's already equipped them with something and and then they go and they use that to to serve him in delivering his people. You look at Samson. We always and they have it in the song i don't know about you i've always in my mind pictured samson as this huge guy but you know what like his strength came from when the holy spirit came upon him so samson may have looked like my size but when the spirit comes upon you you don't have to be arnold schwarzenegger to be able to have strength that goes that seems superhuman but in our minds, I tend to think, I don't know about you guys, I tend to think of Samson as this really big built guy. Um, and so it's really easy to look at these people and to think like they, God used them because they were so good or they had this skill or because they used Samson because Samson was strong. But the 94 verses versus the six tells us that the account is not about Gideon. It's not about the people and their and, and It's not focused on the people and their sin. That's the reason they're in the situation, but that's not the focus. The focus, I mean, God used Gideon, but Gideon is what we see as we go through the account. Gideon is hesitant and he's unsure and he's fearful. And you know what? He's kind of Thomas at times. He, he, he's not sure what to believe or how he, his faith is somewhat shaky. And we'll get into that more as we get into the text starting next week. So that tells us that the focus is on what God did. It's on God's power. And we're going to talk about God's power as we get into comparing the numbers and all that stuff. The, the army that's as numerous as a locust swarm versus what God does with his small group of people so the focus is on God's power the focus remains on God's unfailing love and his unwavering faithfulness to the covenant that he entered into with Israel and so Gideon is well known and Gideon's a great servant i'm not i'm not taking anything away from him as a faithful servant of the lord but the story is not really about Gideon It's about what God is going to do to display his power through a man who's hesitant and weak and his faith is maybe uncertain or shaky and a small group of people who shouldn't be able to even make a dent in battle against the numerous Midianites and so let me just wrap up by saying this Um, we haven't gotten into it yet and we're going to get into it more but the story of Gideon is one that I think should encourage us because every day, and we talked about this last week, and I talk about it frequently, but every day we are in spiritual battle. And every day we are up against an enemy who's smarter than us, an enemy who knows God's word better than we do, an enemy who has the ability to work on the physical and the spiritual realm. And so we face an enemy um, and, and an enemy who has an army that 's uh, nothing that we could count it 's not that he has an unlimited army, but it, he has he has a host of s- demon soldiers working with him, and so like we don 't really have a shot <laughs> of being able to um, to be able to withstand the temptations of the devil and the attacks if if we're not empowered by the Spirit, if we're not walking with the Lord and so we are Gideon we're people who are weak, we're people who sometimes doubt, we're people that are hesitant we're fearful but the Spirit says you just obey do what I tell you and you will watch my power displayed in your life so I want to leave you with that, and we'll, get, we'll see more of how, how that parallels our life and our spiritual battle as we go through the story of Gideon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we have here in this account, and that Gideon is, he's always, in my mind, been somebody who was, you know, trusting, and, and, he, and he did what God, did, God told him to do, and God showed you showed your power through that. But um, he actually was kind of a weak. And you displayed your power through him. And that's exactly what we're told in Scripture in uh, the New Testament as we are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're people who are walking with Christ. It is in our weakness that Paul says we are made strong, or your power is displayed. And so, help us to identify with Gideon. Um, and draw closer to you with a deeper trust and faith than we have before. For you will always be faithful, and you are—you will always conquer. We do not need to fear that. And we're thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. All um, right. Closing song is open our eyes hymn 633 um, if your bulletin says a different hymn than 633 that was my fault I think I looked at the wrong line in ex- the excel sheet so it's 633 if you want to use the hymnal, if you are able to stand would you please stand to honor God as we Lift our voices to him.